listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's got to be Paul's clearest, bluntest statement as to just how different things are once you, quote, belong to Christ, as he puts it. It's a whole new reality, a whole new world, in fact, for in Christ you are all children of God through faith. If you've been here on one of the last two Sundays, You'll know that the lectionary has had us chipping our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's a letter in which the driving question is that of the full inclusion and equality of the Gentiles in the Jesus movement. Against those who have insisted that the Christian movement is also, by definition, a Jewish movement, Paul wields that little word, all. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. All of you are one in Jesus Christ. The very real sense that same little word is wielded against the Roman Empire. For to be a member of this movement is to declare that Jesus is Lord. Jesus, not Caesar. It's God's kingdom that's to shape your lives not the Roman Empire, with its rigid dividing lines, power structures, and hierarchies of privilege. There is no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Notice, though, that this is not some early version of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, or the American Declaration of Independence. No, Paul's starting point is decidedly different from those very modern documents. His proclamation born of a different way of seeing. In their book, In Search of Paul, John Dominic Crossan and Jonathan Reed Imagine having a conversation with Paul regarding the famous assertions of the American Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Do you think, Paul, these two modern scholars asked, do you think that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights? I'm not speaking about all men, Paul might reply, but about all Christians. You see here, Crossan and Reed, in their imaginary conversation, are flagging the fact that Paul is writing explicitly to and about those who have been baptized into Christ and so have clothed themselves with Christ. He's writing to the Christian community. So then they continue their imagined 
conversation with the biblical saint. But do you think, Paul, that all people should be Christians? To which Paul replies, yes, of course. Then do you think, Paul, that it is God's will for all people to be equal to one another? Well, let me think about that one for a while, they imagine Paul replying. Let me think about that one for a while, and in the meantime, you think about the equality in Christ. In the meantime, you think about the equality in Christ. By which Crossan and Reed are suggesting that Paul might well have some critical words to speak to the church across the ages regarding how we have or have not embraced the radical claim, the radical claim Paul believes Christ has placed on his church. Set aside all of those modern documents dealing with human rights, important as they are in their own context, Think instead in terms of Paul's proclamation that we are one in Christ Jesus. My New Testament professor at Trinity College, Toronto, once suggested to us that while the church wrestled with the Jew-Gentile or Jew-Greek issue in the first century, it wasn't until the 19th century that it really dealt with the matter of slave and free. What's more, he claimed it took until the latter half of the 20th century to really address the issue of male and female. I was in those classes, after all, in the mid-1980s, less than a decade from when the Anglican Church of Canada had begun to ordain women. Well, there is some truth in what my professor said, though I've come to see it as being just a little too neat a kind of a straight-line progressivism in which we have ever so slowly come to our enlightened senses, first over Jew-Gentile, then over slave-free, now over male-female. Aren't we clever? In reality, it has been anything but a straight line. And in reality, the church has been tangled on both sides of those issues Take the first century challenge of Jew and Gentile. Paul is writing this letter precisely because the issue's not been resolved. In spite of the fact that ten years earlier, the Council of Jerusalem had discerned that there was no difference between Jew and Gentile, the Gentiles didn't have to convert to Judaism. And yet here, some of these young communities continued to other the Gentiles, to other them. And then, as the centuries rolled forward, and the Christian movement itself became less and less a Jewish movement, Jews themselves began to experience themselves as othered in a horrific kind of a way. Anti-Semitism cuts very deep in the history of the church, something that would have left Paul shaking his head in deep sorrow. Then, the matter of slave and free. Now, that was ostensibly resolved in the 18th and 19th centuries, 
by acts of the English Parliament, acts that were championed by church people like William Wilberforce and John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. And then further resolved by the violence of the American Civil War and, more significantly, the passing of the 13th Amendment to the American Constitution, No More Slavery. In the decade following the American Civil War, in fact, even in the southern states, freed African-American slaves could vote, and some were elected to political office. And then it was clawed back in something called the Reconstruction, and sadly, the churches were often silent about the Reconstruction or even supportive of it. The vast majority of those freed slaves found themselves laboring as sharecroppers in a system that was in so many ways not all that different from slavery and under threat of the violence of lynching. Took another hundred years and countless sacrifices on the part of Christians, both black and white, to put a legal end to that legacy. It's a legal end, mind you. Because as both Jim Wallace and Cornell West, among others, have persuasively argued, our neighbors to the south have yet to come to terms with their original sin of racism. The othering continues. But lest we Canadians get too smug, we're somehow superior when it comes to this story of slavery. We need to know that there were slaves in parts of what is now Canada, my sister's church in Halifax, Nova Scotia, built in the early 1800s while there were still slaves in Nova Scotia. It's a round church with a main floor and a second floor and then this top gallery. And that top gallery with small spaces through which you could look was for the slaves and then for the black servants. They could observe the services without themselves being seen by those who sat below. That original church was severely damaged by fire some 20 years ago. When it was rebuilt, the slave gallery up top was also restored. And it stands now as a very visible memory of that part of that church's legacy of othering Male and female, though, we've, we've figured that one out, right? We have women priests, women bishops, even in the Anglican Church of Canada. It's women in prominent positions in various levels of Canadian government. Yet, Canadian statistics suggest that one in four Canadian women will be sexually assaulted during her lifetime. One in four. It's an appalling statistic one that clearly indicates that in our own country, women are being objectified and violently othered in ways that, again, would make the Apostle Paul weep. Last Sunday morning's events in Orlando, the horrific cost of othering again reared its violent head. Over the weeks, stories have surfaced regarding Omar Mateen, that he had a violent past, that he had been abusive to his first wife, that he identified with Hezbollah and was committing that violence last week in the name of ISIS, that he had been a regular patron of that nightclub 
and was perhaps unable to deal with his own self-loathing over same-sex attraction. Mateen's actions were evil, no question. Yet he has actually been lauded by many, not just by ISIS. The shooter is my hero, someone who identified as, quote, a Christian, not a Muslim, posted on Facebook. The shooter is my hero. The cops should be sued for killing a hero who was doing social justice. May the soul of the shooter rest in perfect peace. The shooter is my hero. It's from someone who at least ostensibly understood in principle that he is one with us, one in the body of Christ, a Christian, and yet that othering again. It's our wake-up call, people. In in their imagined conversation with Paul, Crossan and Reed had asked him, do you think that it is God's will for all people to be equal with one another? To which they'd imagined, I think rightly, they'd imagined Paul replying, let me think about that one for a while. In the meantime, you think about equality in Christ. We're in the meantime, very much in the meantime. And in this meantime space, I believe that we need to proclaim to ourselves that for members of the body of Christ, othering is a complete non-starter. The invitation I speak when I invite you to come forward to Christ's communion table doesn't have all kinds of sub-clauses attached to it. It doesn't say if you've got all of your theology rightly lined up, if you're straight, if you buy into heteronormative versions of relationship, marriage, and gender identity, if you've behaved properly this week, if you've dealt with your compulsive consumption of online pornography, if you've confronted your addictive behaviors, if you've kept your temper in check, no, no. No, no. There is only one condition. It says that in this zone called worship, if you hear the call, if you feel the hunger to meet Jesus and to learn to love Jesus more, if you want to taste and see that the Lord is good, then come. Because as Paul proclaimed with such radical clarity in his letter to the Galatians, in the body of Christ there is no room for othering. There is only one us. And because us, we, are human and as liable as anyone else to judge, exclude, and other, we have to keep pressing on. We have to keep pressing on to a deeper identity as the us of Jesus Christ. And in the body of Christ, in Jesus Christ, there can be no other. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.